Welcome to the Going to Seed monthly podcast. I am Joseph, and my guest today is William Schlegel. William is an educator and botanist. As an educator, he loves to teach students about botany, plant breeding, seeds, and the natural world. He is fascinated by the conservation of plants and the effects of climate change on sustainable food systems. He sees plant breeding as a way citizen scientists can help adapt their communities to climate. My personal interaction with William began many years ago. And since that time, he has been my closest collaborator on the beautifully promiscuous and tasty tomato project. We frequently share seeds and photographs and we communicate about the project. In many ways, I feel like the project has become William's project because he's he's taken the idea and he's ran with it and did just beautiful, amazing work. And we'll get to talk about that today. So welcome, William. Hi. Is there anything additional you'd like to add to the introduction? Um trying to think if uh, there's another similar question coming or if you've just sort of phrased it differently than then but as a you know uh, one of the more important things I do in life is I am the father of a six-year-old boy he's about to turn seven and you know the duration of his life is is pretty much the duration of my tomato breeding because as he was even back when he was an endoparasite in 2016, I was growing some tomatoes. And I had a couple tomatoes in 2016 that volunteered. So I kind of started the garden late because I left I left Santa Barbara. We came home to Montana to have Theodore. And I had two tomatoes from seed that produced a few ripe fruits. And I thought to myself, you could almost direct seed tomatoes in Montana. So I saved some seed from those. But then I started getting online and I started looking for the shortest season tomatoes that you could find. And amongst the sources I found for plant breeding stuff, I'd been interested in plant breeding for some time, I found Joseph. And I, I was like, well, I think I've heard of this guy before, but you know, I was down in California. I didn't have garden going on. And he had on his website, he had, you had to send him silver dimes for a packet of seeds. How, how do you do that? Okay. So you get on eBay and you can buy a roll of like a hundred of them for like a hundred bucks or something. So you, so I did that. They came, put them in an envelope. I mailed them to Joseph. I said, you know, I want, you know, and and a hundred seed packets that didn't actually cover everything Joseph was selling back then. It was probably about the height of Joseph's personal gardening and seed selling. And he had he had more than a hundred projects going on all at the same time. And he sold that he saved seed from and he sold seed for. So I, I said, give, give me what you can for a for hundred bucks, you know. But then at the same time, we started talking on permies.com about this idea I had of, I think we could direct seed tomatoes into Montana maybe, but I imagine this was going to be like a hard plant breeding project. Then 2017, when it was one of those hot, and of course, because it was a hot year, it's also a intense firefighting, fire, fire year. So the sky filled with smoke but the tomatoes did wonderful. I tried taking a few of them to the farmer's markets, just deserted because, you know, no customers. But everything worked. So I was like, well, shoot. But I also discovered some. Joseph had written about how some tomatoes have these exerted stigmas that stick out. And Alan Kapooler had written a, an essay about tomatoes that occasionally outcross. And, and so I looked... I looked through the 70 varieties or 70 kinds of tomatoes, some of which included Joseph's uh, land race at the time and some things in my gar 17 garden. And I found one where the stigmas really stuck out. 
It was Lee Goodwin's, what did he call it? Blue, blue something. Anyway, it was one of Lee Goodwin's tomato varieties, and it was so unstable that it was still really variable. But four out of five of the plants that I had planted had these stigmas that just stuck way out of the pollen cone. So I, I went around my garden with 70 different sorts of tomatoes. Some, some of those sorts included some of Joseph's land races that were like lots of kinds. So I don't know how many they represent, really represented. And I, I gathered mixed pollen and I dabbed it on as many of those stigmas as I possibly could. And then I saved all the tomatoes from that variety. And then the next year I planted out F1 seed and I tried to identify F1s. And then next year I grew out the F2, just like massive direct seeded garden. And I probably wasted tons of genetics there because you know it's like really hard to tell one boring red tomato from another (laughs) who the the father was but i found some with stripes and they were almost certainly bothered by what i think was a mursky tiger or amur tiger that i bought one plant of in 2016 at the missoula farmers market and that one plant did great so i saved seed um, and i tried direct seeding it in 2017 and it did great direct seeded it came back as a volunteer it was all over my 2017 garden so that was probably the father and and it actually led to two two varieties that i have in these little baggies that are one's striped in red and it has the exerted stigma and one's striped in yellow and it doesn't really have the exerted stigma so anyway that's I think I digressed a bit. So what can, what can you tell us about your background uh, outside of farming or including farming or? Well, I grew up here in Western Montana. I hold two degrees, a degree in biology with an emphasis in botany. It's a Bachelor of Arts. So I, I sometimes say I'm an artist and I'm allowed to wear funny hats. I got that one in like 2001. And then I got a second, a Bachelor of Science in secondary science education. So I can teach, and I'm a certified science teacher here in the state of Montana. So I can teach fifth through 12th graders science. Nice. And then, you know, grew up, I'm kind of the first generation off the farm of my family here in Western Montana. My parents are both school teachers. They met at the what at the time that's kind of the state teaching college in Dillon, Montana, and they're both students there. But my mom was kind of more from a ranching family. And my dad was more from a wheat farming family. Mm-hmm. But then my dad's mom is more from a ranching family. And my dad's dad is more from a wheat farming family. There was a recent study published a few years ago that found that basically all European people descend from are about 50% Turkish wheat farmer and about 50% Russian cowboy. Apparently, the Turkish wheat farmers invaded Europe about 7,000 years ago, and then the Russian cowboys invaded them about 5,000 years ago, brought along the pneumonic plague, probably wiped out about half the wheat farmers and replaced, replaced them genetically. So tell us about your early life that led you to become to crop breeding? Well, my mom sort of established a policy where I got to pick something to grow. And I remember we picked, I picked sugar beets one year. And so we grew grew a big row of sugar beets. And one year I picked peanuts and we grew a big row of peanuts. And the sugar beets were extremely productive. This was before sugar beets were GMO and it was easy for burpees or gurneys or whatever it was to to just offer them the general public and my mom (laughs) said later oh yeah i canned those in with the other vegetables you ended up eating a lot of them it's like kind of just like like well what do we do with these i don't know (laughs) but the peanuts were a crop failure though john shirk managed to do it in indiana but and they had them at Snake River a few years ago, they had a variety of peanuts. So it's it's possible. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't tried to get back into peanuts, but it's 
it is it is possible. Gotta try it again sometime. And then when I was about in high school, we kind of moved down to Missoula so that my sister could start college. She was like 15 at the time. And we we had a different house down there in a different yard. And my parents were kind of, I don't know if they were busy or what, but they weren't putting in a vegetable section. They did a lot of gardening in the backyard, but there wasn't a vegetable section or there wasn't a, you know, so I, I wanted to grow some stuff and there wasn't an all established garden area for it. So I kind of asked if I could and they were like, yeah, sure. So I just went out there, dug up sod and moved, moved it onto the sod pile and prepared, you know, a small garden area. And I got some Ethiopian teff seed and some wheat seed. And I remember I grew Christmas lima beans from like the, I just bought <laughs> a bag of bananas at, at like an organic grocery store and some other random stuff and this little plot and so that was, you know, in high school. And I threshed out the Ethiopian teff when it got ripe and I I ground it in the blender and I I made some graham crackers out of it with a graham cracker recipe I was a little obsessed with at the time and uh, got it from a workshop at Montana State University in Bozeman that I think I attended between eighth grade and ninth grade. Anyway, so uh, I had uh, a little, you know, project to try to get blue flower corn out of the painted mountain flower corn when I was in college and a few few things going on like that I was you know I read Carol Depp's book but at the same time I was a biology major so I I did take a like a evolution and genetics class at the college level there with my first degree and then I'd taken you know high school uh, genetics, of course, in, in biology class as a sophomore in high school. And, you know, that what we teach you, you know, like if I were your science teacher and I was teaching you genetics, what I would teach you actually would be more than most people in the history of plant breeding have known. Right. But I feel like most high schoolers don't really pay attention to that. They're not that interested mm -hmm. in Remember the presentations on Gregor. There was this old dude. He's dead now. His name was Gregor Mindel. <laughs> but not, I don't think a lot of the students actually get excited about high school genetics. But I was I was pretty excited. I was breeding guppies in high school. So it one one thing that we share is I was also breeding guppies in high school and junior high school. <laughs> it's pretty fun to, you know, I wasn't very hardcore about it but i mean like you pick out the one you want you put you put the boy you want in with the girls you take the boys you don't want and put uh, them somewhere else right have a tank where you put everybody you don't like very much yeah it's kind of crowded <laughs> anyway so th that's the sort well, yeah. of thing what are, what are your local growing conditions what were they like you know when you were there at that age what are they like today well, today I have tomato plants that are still unfrozen. It is October the 14th. <laughs> I have a historical belief that my garden should freeze on September 1st. Like the hammer, hammer should fall and frost, horrific frost should come. And that still happens sometimes. But I feel like it's not happening as often as it used to. When I was a kid growing up in the 80s, the summer skies were very blue. Now about every third or fourth or fifth year, the summer skies are gray with uh, wildfire smoke. I would say that something has changed or is changing. And you know, as a science teacher, one of the things I would tell you about that is, the climate is literally always changing. It is either always going up in temperature or it is always going down in temperature gradually. And we, you know, when my father was a student in the 1950s, they taught a lot of those students in the 1950s that they might be being raised on the precipice of a new ice age. 
that we were at about the end of the interglacial period, and we might start sliding back into the next glacial period. That's actually still true, but anthropogenic climate change, which most is believe strongly in, does seem to be having some impact. So what's your your soil like, your fertility of your fields, that kind of stuff? Well, 2003, when I bought my garden land, I had I had taken a soil science class. I didn't do very well in the soil science class. It, it was definitely like a hard C for me because I, there wasn't much for my brain to attach to there. But I went out there, I, I looked at the land, and I knew it had been a grassland. And I was like, soil. this will be a soil. this will be a grassland soil, this will be a fertile soil. I should have dug a hole, should have dug a hole, should have dug a hole. The soil survey for my land, which is now available online, and I now know how to access it online, which I did not 20 years ago, says that my soil has a seven-inch plow layer over a seven-inch clay accumulation layer. That seven, and then under that, there's a few other like layers, but it comes pretty quickly. It comes to lacustrian parent material, which is the sediment that settled out onto glacial Lake Missoula when glacial Lake Missoula was here, and little little silts and fines and fine clays and silts settled out in the water, and there's deep layers of that. And you can see those deep layers down along the Flathead River here, white cliffs of, and that's that's lacustrian parent material. But it, lacustrian parent material isn't too bad, but that seven inch clay accumulation layer is, is a bit problematic. Water tends to go down and then run across that seven inch clay accumulation layer. It's like water runs under my soil. So it's not good soil. <laughs> well, should we get to the tomato project? Sure. Tell us, tell us about what you're doing with tomatoes. Well, probably my most intense project is this one. And I, I don't think I can actually show you guys tomatoes very well. It doesn't look like they come through very well. But this is a this is a hairy little tomato. And it is a cross between Joseph Lofthouse's Promiscuous Tomato Project and a tomato called LA2329. It's at Solanum Habricades accession from the Tomato Genetics Resource Center. And I haven't particularly gotten anything back edible yet from this project, although I think I'm getting there. But there, there was a there's a researcher who made some arthropod resistance lines from this this the wild accession the la2329 and he put up a very interesting youtube video a couple of years ago so i've i've been sort of plugging away at recreating his work i'm not sure if it will work but it's a it's a very interesting you know tomato so i've i've restarted kind of the promiscuous tomato project and taken it back to the extremely unpalatable phase um, so can, I, can you define arthropod for us? Ah, <laughs> uh, that's bugs. Well, and technically, when we talk about bugs, we should only be talking about hemipterans, the true bugs, the bugs that have the little diamond-shaped section on their back that that we know they're true bugs. But um, so really, not bugs. Anything with a hard skeleton <laughs> and a gooey middle that a spider could um, make a nice meal of by injecting it with its, liquefies its insides. And, but actually, probably most realistically, it's it's something that, that would be potent against mites and thrips and, and the little teeny tiny white flies, the little teeny tiny insects that plague our crops. I... I didn't do a very good test of it against Colorado potato beetle this year, but uh, I would say that the Colorado potato beetles seemed pretty happy with it, but equally happy with it as as the the things without any arthropod resistance. So I I don't think it okay it's going to be anything we can use for Colorado potato beetles on tomatoes, for instance, the larger well, larger. This summer I was this summer I was growing cactus. 
and I had all these little seedlings that were about the size of a pea and grasshoppers came in and ate the ate the cactus in my greenhouse but then they immediately died so I was kind of pleased with that so so right. you you were recreating the the initial promiscuous tomato project then with your crosses with the LA 20 yeah and this this tomato is then five eighths wild oh very nice very nice have you found anything other than green fruited in that line yet no but having been through kind of generations of growing the first promiscuous project you you reduced the the wild down to about a quarter uh -huh. and then we got all these elites things that look like this uh -huh. this is XL red strain promiscuous project tomato I'm um, glad you're still growing that <laughs> well it's, there's there's strains of it and then there's strains of it anyway I reduced some down to a quarter uh -huh. and I had what I thought was a lot of seed and then I got five plants from that lots of seed oh no and one of those five plants I doubt I'm going to get what I want from the one plant but I did save a lot of seed from it I'm sure next year it'll segregate out some edible tomatoes and palatable, probably some some elites, but is it's too too narrowing of, of the genetics to actually hope that the arthropod resistance will come through. So it but I've made more crosses like that for next year. So we'll we'll see. Very nice. So so when you're working with the tomatoes, what kind of selection criteria do you? do you have well i left out this part of my tomato story earlier but in 2000 <laughs> amy and i were taking well i was just taking classes because you know one of the last schools with a botany program in the country and my girlfriend just happens to go to school there so yeah so we went we went to oregon state together in 2012 13 winter or was it the 2011-2000? Yeah, it was it 2011-2012 winner? Anyway, so we took these classes at Oregon State. We took plant genetics together from a barley breeder there, Patrick Hayes. It was great. Amy, Amy was like, "Yeah, B is good enough." I was like, "What, Amy? What? This is the coolest class ever." <clears throat> but Jim Myers, the Oregon State vegetable breeder bred uh, released his blue tomato in in the spring of 2012 so we bought seed from and we were so excited to grow this cool blue tomato that jim jim myers had bred oregon state you know and then the year after that i got on brad gates website and i was like how the heck did he manage that i mean jim just released this thing he's got like 12 varieties of these blue things how do you do that Despite the backstory there. Um, so I, I also had tomatoes of that variety that were illicit. <laughs> and this one, this one here is a Tom Wagner, and it tastes really good. And I, I made a cross with it this year because I discovered it last year and I was like, oh, that's actually really good tasting. But yeah, apparently they had a bit of a leak of genetic material from that lab. Some grad student or lab assistant sent out a bunch of bunch of seeds, and all the breeders went crazy and made these beautiful blue tomatoes and just tons of them. And and I still I still like that blue trait. It's it's it captured my imagination a little bit. I like blue things. Usually wear a blue shirt. This one's slightly green, but and so I had I had some. Brad Gates tomatoes already. And so I crossed probably Brad Gates blue gold with a little tomato that was in one of Joseph's mixes with potato leaves. And it was probably the one Joseph calls Brad because some of them have segregated out with the little gold spots. But so I, I grew lots of blue tomatoes. So that's one of the things I look for. And then I have been pretty careful to try to get this exerted stigmas trait back uh -huh. and it's actually quite a bit of work to get that 
back in, in its more extreme forms. So you have to take something like this exerted tiger tomato that's my red with stripes. And they're sort of weak stripes and it's sort of weak blue. But then you end up with a lot of things like uh, a yellow tomato with the stripes, but then it doesn't have the exerted stigma. So uh, you end up with two tomatoes and you keep one in sort of just your collection. And and I, I, I released exerted tiger to the world a little bit through the Snake River Seeds. In early, like I think it was F3 or F4, but it's it's not everything I'd like it to be. But it had the exertion pretty reliably, I thought, so I put it out for other people. But that's one of the things that I would really like to do with this is try to make a tomato that has a lot of traits that would be really useful to young people just wanting to start with amateur breeding because I think that exerted stigma is is really useful you know Joseph's attempt at that was first attempt at that was his big hill or hx9 tomato and it's it's a nice tomato it's regular leafed and it's it's got a big fat exerted stigma with kind of an open flower a little bit and it's really easy to make crosses with you don't even, if you can't figure out how to rip those anthers off with some tweezers or <laughs> forceps, you can just dab on there and, and go to town and you'll get some crosses. But this tomato is my attempt. So I took the tomato to improve on it a little bit. I, I took the tomato that Joseph bred and I crossed it with the one I bred, which was one of his tomatoes times one of Brad Gates' tomatoes. And I got something I call Mission Mountain Morning. So I called the first one Mission Mountain Sunrise, and then this one's Mission Mountain Morning. You probably see where I'm going with this. Just keep reusing the same name with different times of day for a while. Anyway, and I got a potato leafed one. And I don't know where I'm going with that, but I used it for 12 crosses last year. And then I used those 12 crosses for a ridiculously large number of crosses this year. And I'm probably well, joking some of the things I want. Yeah, potato leaf really useful for making crosses because if you cross a potato leaf with a regular leaf, then the crosses show up in the next generation easy as can be. Yes. And so I'd like to sort of stack some of these traits into what I think of as a mother variety for or to tomatoes then I could send out to people and they could they could make their own crosses and I like these fancy things like stripes and the blue cut skin so it, I'd like it to be striped and have blue skin and potato leaves and a really nicely exerted stigma and you know but I want so many things on it that I'll maybe never be done with it <laughs> right <laughs> so are you are you direct seeding these all the time now or are you still starting them inside I do both I do a weird mix of both. So this very large tomato was direct seeded in my Montana garden, but it's a it's a Joseph Lofthouse Promiscuous Project XL Red strain tomato. And uh, it was surprising how well that did direct seeded this year. And it says a little something pro that strain. It's like, oh. We got some really big tomatoes and they came out direct seeded just fine. Of course, the tomatoes haven't frozen and it's October 14th. And what's up with that? So are your seeds available from like Snake River Seed Co-op and Experimental Farm Network both? I think that Snake River might have some of my stuff still. They were even, I didn't want to, take the space away from breeding to grow another generation of some of it so i think some of it they might have even had somebody else growing a generation of nice efbn i just sent them a packet of seed about five ounces of seed no a little less yeah. than four four point six or something four point three i don't know of a grex of uh, the 12 10 or 11 of the 12 crosses i made last year and hopefully they'll offer that grex. And then I grew out what I wanted to be Joseph's project, 
in an isolation garden this year for for the going to seed group. I I would say that a certain percentage of those tomatoes are going to have some blue on them. Uh-huh. Tomatoes cross apparently right. when you being <laughs> able to cross at a higher higher rate. Can you give us some Colton tips about growing tomatoes and selecting them among that those populations? So, you you know, Joseph, your promiscuous project is confounding me a little bit on on the selection front of things. So I made a selection two years ago <laughs> this project, and you know it it had been segregating a while supposedly. So it was like, okay, this is probably you know probably like maybe this is like in the F four already or something. It it almost has to have crossed. So this whole bag is from my, so I said, this is the one, and I've been calling it the one. <laughs> the, the one is six different tomatoes. It's a, it's a cherry tomato. It's an orange cherry tomato with some blue on it. It's an, it's an orange tomato. It's a yellow tomato. It's an XL red tomato. <laughs> this one's kind of pretty. I don't know if I can hold this up and you can kind of see those green stripes. I think of those as Habricades stripes. So yeah. it's done with some good old Habricades stripes. It's I've got I've got six tomatoes saved from that. So it's and it's my it's my isolation project. So from from Joseph's project. So I, I would say my from that one, I would say it doesn't necessarily behave well. Uh, when you try to isolate, well, except I also, I, part of that's I put it in some crossing blocks last year and then I recombined. So it had wow. some opportunities to cross. I didn't actually think it had taken those opportunities, but I I think it did. <laughs> um, right. And I thought the cross would go maybe best one way. I put in the potato leaf mothers and and that's where I was expecting the cross. And then I took those seeds and I, I grew them out looking for regular leaves. Nope, not a, not, a, not a regular leaf in the bunch. Gave them away to a couple of colleagues who they call their outfit seedlings for solidarity and they, they give away seedlings to people. So I was like, yeah, take take these seedlings. You know, they're, they're locally bred, but they... they they took a, but I think the cross went the other way. I think the uh, one accepted the pollen of of the Mission Mountain Morning and Mission Mountain Sunrise instead of the other way around. Nice. Um, so can you give us some ideas or your ideas about what we should be growing in our gardens in order to attract pollinators? Okay. I'm gonna drop something in the chat for that uh, real quick. Okay. Let me see there if I can find it. Here in the northern Rockies. A group of researchers, I'll just refer to them as Runyon et al., found that nine native plants will support 80% of the native bees. And native bees are extremely diverse. Mm -hmm. So the plants they used in their mix, and, and there's some asides here, they used Bev's willow. You could use whatever is the most common willow, native willow in your area. They use kinnikinnik, they use silky lupin, they use woods rose, they use snowberry, they use showy fleabane, leafy aster, and blanket flower. And this was sort of revelatory to me as somebody who thought I was gardening for the bees. Mm -hmm. Snowberry wasn't on my radar as something I needed to grow because I have a bunch up on my hill. And I was like, oh, I don't need to plant any of that. I've already got it on my hill. Those of you who are you know, like if you were in Europe right now, you don't have snowberry. I just checked Wikipedia earlier today and there's there's a coral berry in Asia, but there's no snowberries in, in Europe. So you'd have to go to the family level and found, find things in the twinberry family and the honeysuckle family and grow grow some natives in the honeysuckle family instead of snowberry. And showy fleabane, leafy aster and blanket flower are all just things in the aster family. So you grow a mixture of things in the aster family, kinnikinnicks in the heath family and the blueberry family, something in the blueberry family, uh, lupins. So in the Northern hemisphere, you're just gonna find a willow, something in the heath family, 
some kind of lupin, some kind of rose, something in the twin barrier honeysuckle family, and some asters. But I thought bee balm. I thought bee balm and horse mint would be extremely important for, for bees based on just observation because they just get swarmed by them. But I was actually wrong when you actually do the research. Kinnikinnik and snowberry are so important to native bee conservation. So, but but kind of general advice. There were a couple of bee researchers down in California that I met when I was working down there years ago and got to go to a bee ID workshop for work. And they did a huge study in California and they went to a lot of like botanical garden and things and they they ran their study and their biggest advice was grow a, a wide diversity of flowering plants in your garden. Most gardeners, most modern gardeners are not no longer doing that. Most traditional gardeners totally are, I mean, it's just part of what we do. But if you go like your average suburb and things are like landscaped and it's like, there's this very narrow range of plants. So grow a wide diversity of plants and maybe pay attention to this work from Renyan et al. And think about growing some things off their lists because- uh, Snowberry. What was the other plant you said besides snowberry? Bebs willow, kinnikinnik, silky lupin, woods rose, snowberry, showy fleabane, leafy aster, and blanket flower. Now this is specific to kind of the Northern Rockies. You guys down in Utah, you're, you're probably more the central Rockies. So, so this is going to change a little. And, you know, like even I look at this Bebs Willow and I'm like, why'd they only test Bebs Willow? Gowler's <laughs> Willow makes so much more sense because it has a wider ecological amplitude. But they didn't uh, test it for their research. I mean, the researchers, they test what they test and then they have to publish or perish. But yeah, I'm going to grow Scowler's Willow instead of Bebs Willow and see how it does. But... Right. It's, it's a very interesting to think. And why why do you guys suppose willows so important? Well, when I, when I used to keep honeybees, the willows were the first thing to flower in the spring before any, any other plant was flowering, they were producing pollen. Yes, and it's pollen. And they're, they're, they're not, they're maybe affecting a little pollination for the willows, but I mean, willows are mainly wind pollinated. They're pollen, pollen robbing off those willows. They're getting some pollen food from those willows. And they're, they're just stealing it because they're not really effectively pollinating the willow. But I mean, like, yeah, early in the spring, willows, and often they're covered in the little itty bitty native bees. So, yeah. And it's a little bit more water for a willow bush. But yeah, having a willow bush somewhere in your yard can do things for, for, for bee diversity. Right. Well, so we're coming up on the end of the hour. I'd like to open it up for any questions from our participants. I have a question first. Okay. I want to talk about fava beans for just a second, because that's one of your projects. This year in my garden, I grew my fava beans, harvested them. I just cut, cut them off at ground level. So I always let the roots just stay in the ground and then make sure I'll plant again. But they came up and they're producing a second crop. Does that happen often? Is that unusual? That's not unusual. It's, it's definitely something I've, I've noticed. Some strains do, some don't. Mine, mine were a horrible mix, are a horrible mix. I actually, <laughs> this was a skip year for me on fava beans just because busy or whatever, but some, some will, will do that. So is that a good trait? To, um, I haven't tasted them. I don't know what they're going to taste like. I don't know which, because mine are um, a land race already. That's what I started with was Joseph's land race. And so I don't know which ones they are that are producing a second crop. But if they taste good, that would be something, a good thing to breed for, wouldn't it? Get two crops off of one planting. Sure. Okay. Sweet. I'm always curious. <laughs> Fava's were on my list of things to talk about, so thank oh, you, Holly. Sorry. <laughs> no, I just skipped over it. Oh. I also know that you were doing some work on Claytonia. How is that 
working out for you? Well, I haven't actually seen any progress, but I've gotten to play around a little with Claytonia diversity, and it's, it's interesting. Um, um, can you plug Claytonia and tell us why we all should be breeding Claytonia? <laughs> oh, okay, this is what I noticed about Claytonia. And I am going to give a plug out to a former colleague, Thomas Stoughton. He lives in like New Hampshire or nearby somewhere now. But he was he was on the mountaintop district of the San Bernardino National Forest when I was on the San Jacinto Ranger District. And he went on to get his PhD at Claremont College associated with the Rancho Santa Ana Botanic Garden, which has recently rebranded itself to the California Botanic Garden to my great, you have no respect for tradition. <laughs> but anyway, they, they rebranded themselves. But anyway, Tommy has a great website called claytonia.org. And he has some great diagrams on there or, or illustrations of, of diversity within the miners lettuce complex of three species. So it's a three species complex and there's lots of natural hybrids out there in the wild. So you could literally just go out in the woods in the Western part of the United States and find quite a bit of genetic diversity in the miners lettuce complex, three species complex. Why I think that's important is there's only one species and basically only one variety of one species available commercially for gardeners. So it's it's something that in the wild already exists as fancy lettuce, basically. Hmm. And in domestication, is just one boring variety of lettuce. So this thing we call miner's lettuce, the, the diversity that's already out there isn't isn't available to gardeners, isn't available to farmers. And it I think it's an important group because it's one of two crops that Elliot Coleman grows as winter crops. Winter, winter lettuce crops in Maine. The other is a little thing called, what is that called? Corn salad. And it, it's from Europe. But there's a feral population that I found just out in the 20-acre in the field behind the house here. Of corn salad? Yeah. Yeah, I posted a picture of it once, like February or something. I, I walk, went for a walk and I saw some poking out. And you're like, it's green in February. I'm like yeah, yeah it's February. <laughs> this is one of the, this is why Elliot Coleman grows it in in Maine in, in cold frames, sells it to people for fancy lettuce greens. Yeah. So how can we get hold of you, William? Holly, uh, Holly, I think we'll drop some links into the chat, but you can tell us too. Go go to the go to the open source seed initiative plant breeding forum, and you'll you'll probably find a bit too much tomato top for me there. Sweet. All right. Anyone have last minute question for William? I see one in the chat from Justin a while ago. Oh, yeah. I just Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, sorry, I can't see you. I'm not sure what's going on. But I don't really have other problems that I've noticed outside here. I do have a little spider my issue inside. And the Galapagans are fine. Penelli's fine as well. I can notice a little bit of spider mite, like right now, I have to order more predators, but I can notice a little bit on the crosses, including Galapagans and Penelli crosses. But I wonder, I'm not sure, William, if you've got to F2 with the Galapagans crosses yet, but I wonder if they'd be good against arthropods. Theoretically, yes. <laughs> yeah, theoretically. Yeah. But testing, I have no way to test. Yeah, fair enough. Now, if my wife, who's who's gotten quite in, to be quite the plant pathologist since she got really excited about cut flowers, uh, she just let me breed spider mites and white flies and oh, what's that other thing she hates? Thrips inside over the winter. You know, uh, I get in so much trouble. I, I'm not allowed to get <laughs> spider mites intentionally. I don't think. Um, I've I've been maintaining a population. <laughs> I have a general question, and apologies for messing up the time. I meant to um, check in an hour sooner, but I, I mixed up the time zones. So I'm in Australia, and we have a feral population of Pimpinifolia, and which is fairly common all through Australia. And I'm guessing in other parts of the world too that there's 
There's initial foundation populations of Pimpinella folium that have gone wild and gone through all sorts of local selective pressure. And I'm just wondering if you have any sense about how useful that resource might be for including in tomato breeding programs. You know, there are these these classic varieties, Florida Everglades, Spoon, a Mexican Midget of Pimpinella folium. I found, last winter, I found a, a really interesting book and it's like the first book on tomatoes written in, in, in the U.S. And it's some guy in the late 1800s who was trying to promote his tomato business. His selection procedures were pretty suspiciously bad. But he, but whoever made the book, the modern version, included a list of the varieties that were available back then. And guess what was available? Current tomatoes were available in the late 1800s. And there was a sort of famous tomato breeder in like the, I think he was active in like the 20s, 30s, 40s, you know. And he actually went down to Mexico and made some crosses. And I found out that this really old tomato from him, it's like 50% pimp. Uh-huh. Um, people still swear by Florida Everglades. I gotta go for it. It's there. Mm. You've got it. Use it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I I just wonder, like, I only know what's happening in Australia and my tomatoes, this wild strain of of pimp just turns up in my goat paddocks. Like I, I do nothing. Like the birds spread it, it just grows without any preparation. The fruit quality is better when it goes feral in my in my vegetable gardens, but mm. it's it, it's got I mean, what can be a more consistent selective breeding program than just surviving on your own terms, basically, without humans involved? Just a general comment, though, about Solanum pimpinellifolium. One of the reasons why Joseph's work with Solanum habricates and, and Andrew and Joseph's work with Solanum panellii was so interesting is because they have this cool feature where they are obligate outcrossers like tomatillos are. Pimpinella foliums are by and large, they just self. Mm. So there's tremendous diversity in Pimpinella folium, but it's across strains. It's not yeah. within strains. Yeah. But then these these nasty green wind ripe things that weren't selected by birds and humans, uh, they, they have the obligate outcrossing and they have within so within accession, deep genetic diversity, because they have all these recessives hiding in there. So if you if you think that all the local pimpinella foliums are likely one one strain, just just keep that in mind. It's yeah, it's one pimpinella folium strain's worth of genetic diversity, and yeah. it's just there because it got to Australia first somehow. Yeah, which is great, but I mean, like, yeah, it's a. And it probably does evolve at a faster rate than garden tomatoes because it's got a lot of territory. So the population Mm. size is huge. Mm. I have one other question that I've been meaning to ask to a tomato breeding expert. So I have a strain of tomato that I I really love that I picked up from another tomato breeding person who I've lost contact with and my notes are terrible, but I've got it marked as having chilensis in its ancestry. And I wonder, is that likely or is it a, a mistake on their part or my part? It, it's got brown fruit that are quite large and it grows almost as vigorously as a pimpinella folium for me. There, there's some strains. Did you say chillins? Yeah, yeah. There's some strains that early moderns and types, one that I found just from local regional breeding, is the Payette tomato, named for Payette, Idaho. Payette had, and I guess it's a fairly common problem in the Western U.S., leaf curl or some, something like that, curly top, curly top. And it's a viral disease spread by leaf hoppers, which are a true hemipteran. And they couldn't find, and this was like, this was a long time ago, over 50 years ago, I think. They couldn't find a domestic tomato that seemed to have any resistance. So that we have to go back to the wild ancestors. And they went to Peruvianum and Habricates. And 
then they took this thing and they crossed it with a few different things, including like the classic tomato of North Dakota, bison. And then they crossed it to a tomato called Sioux over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, back crossed it until they bred out all the nastiness they thought. And somehow they ended up with a true dwarf, fairly small, saladette-sized tomato, has some resistance to curly top. And it's got hardly any wild in it, but it's like, okay, so this thing's like 99% Sioux, but it's it's not at all like Sioux. So what did they do? <laughs> Is, and, you know, you always have to ask yourself the question because like they thought they knew what Honeycrisp was and what the parents were. The notes were wrong. They actually did the genetic testing on the Honeycrisp apple and it's not from the parents they thought it was from because even at a university breeding program where you're taking careful notes and, you know, like seeds get in the wrong dish, pollen gets from the wrong plant to the wrong plant, you know, it, not everything works. So when you genetically test these things, you know, but we have this amazing pedigree of paper <laughs> and it's, that's what we think happened, uh-huh. but it's, it's a very different, I mean, it's, it's a true dwarf and it's, I just realized Payette has two offspring that are also true dwarf, you know, and just ordered seed for the second of them. But it's, it's, it's really interesting that we had this wonderful local regional tomato breeding happening up right up until 1990 and then it just stopped because universities kind of moved on all right um like to thank my guest today william schlegel it's been a pleasure william and thank you to holly and julia and anna for the technical support today and with that it's a wrap until next week or next month our guest next month will be evan sofro and Evan and I worked also on the Promiscuous Tomato Project with me up in Idaho. And Evan inspired me to learn to play the guitar. And so I'm sure we'll have a lot of interesting conversation next month as well. All right. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thanks so much. It was very interesting. Thank you.